All right, well, here we are. Resurrection Sunday was celebrated last week. And those of us who call ourselves Christian are immediately swept up into the life of discipleship. It's been a good Friday. It's been the resurrection. And now we head towards Pentecost some seven weeks after Easter when the Spirit comes upon the church and we are all sent out to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world. That's what happened in the New Testament. And the book of Acts in the New Testament records all of this. Okay? So here we find ourselves imitating this same timeline, this same life, and we're trying to embrace it. And so we want to move into a time here, at least for the next two weeks, and then I think uh, Pastor Garrett will also continue this, but we're going to talk about discipleship. And I want to break it down into two parts for the next two weeks. Next two weeks. First off would be, why discipleship? So we're going to do some heavy lifting today, some serious thought. And then next week, how discipleship? What will it look like? And we're going to focus on habits then. So we have work to do uh, because Christ is raised. All right? Now, just so you know, I, I have spent well over a year now vigorously working on trying to figure out how Christian discipleship works. I'm in school. I'm working on a doctorate. And it's taking a tremendous amount of effort and energy. And, uh, but I'm deeply engrossed in the idea of how does discipleship work? Is it working well? Is what we're doing actually producing little Jesuses? <laughs> you know, is this happening? And I have to say that the consensus is, is that in our lifetime, right now in America, discipleship is not going well. Now, I think at Lakeland, we have some extra exceptional stuff that's really cool going on. If you look at our, our numbers and our metrics and measurements around here and stuff, you guys, there are more people involved in small groups. There's givings out of here, uh, out, you know, through the ceiling. Um, people are just involved like crazy. There's really good stuff going on. But in general, for the population, what we have found is that actually Christians are now viewed as some cranky, belligerent, mean-spirited, judgmental people. Where is that in Jesus? I'm not alone in this opinion. Dr. Dallas Willard, who died about a year ago, he's former dean of philosophy at the University of Southern California. Willard uh, wrote an excellent book. Uh, I have it right here. It's called The Spirit of the Disciplines. It's really, okay, it's a must read, you know, if you're a serious-minded Christian. Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. He says this talking about modern-day discipleship. He says that modern thinking about Christianity has become powerless, archaic, and irrelevant. Willard states, Faith today is treated as something that only should make us different, not that actually does, it does, or can make us different. It's a should, everyone. The Christian life has become a should. I should follow Jesus. We think of discipleship the same way we think about going to the gym. I should go to the gym. I should work out. I should eat better. I should exercise. I should, you know, help the poor. Should, should, should. You know, shoulds come from outside of us, you know. Shoulds are other people's voices. I should help. I should be nicer. I should be more fit. Needs come from within. But shoulds come from without. And so somehow, people like me, preachers and so forth, have gotten up in front of you and said, you should be following Jesus. You say, yeah, I should. 
The weirdness is, is that somehow the Christian life has become optional. It's become optional. At the core of the problem is the unchristian recent separation of conversion from discipleship. You can trace this historically back to about 1826 with Charles Finney on the wild, woolly western frontier of New York. <laughs> when he's out amongst the canal diggers and the coal miners and he's calling them to a tent revival type thing and people are being recommitted as though it was conversion. Before that, this sort of thing never went on. So this whole sort of like a crusade come to Jesus stuff is actually a fairly recent phenomena in Western culture. And it's very American. What I'm pointing out is that there's this strange thing within Protestant evangelicalism, which is our brand of Christianity, that separates conversion from discipleship. It was never meant to be that way. There was no conversion as some set of beliefs that was separate from discipleship. There was only ever conversion to discipleship. <laughs> the weirdness is, is that you can now believe, you can believe in Jesus without following Jesus. Very strange. Actually, I would go far, so far as to say it's not Christian. It's not Christianity. The problem is his faith has been reduced, reduced down to like a get out of jail free card in Monopoly. You carry the card around you and now you've got it. And when you die, you get to cash it in. But you sign the card, you've got it, it's in your wallet. I recall one father of a teenage son who told me that he just wanted his son to pray the prayer. And did we have like a youth rally or a camp or some event that he could go to so he could pray the prayer and get in? I said, I can't think of anything like that. What he didn't know is that the son had been talking about, and I overheard him talking about when he's going to go away to college and how many girls he was going to conquer. But as long as he prayed that prayer, everything was good. What shall we do to fix discipleship in our culture, in the church? We begin here. Most of Christianity, Christianity follows some sort of three-part scheme of the Christian life. So here's the big picture, and it's a very big picture, and it's hanging right over here, Sunday after Sunday. Surrender, together, love. There's nothing magical or Lakeland discovered something that no other church has discovered. This has been around since the beginning of Christianity. You surrender to Jesus Christ. You come together in the church. And then you love other people. Remember, you always are at the end of loving other people. The gospel did not come just to you. It came through you. You are conduit. The gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. You and I are to be the best Jesus that the next person who meets you has ever met. You may be the only Bible somebody ever sees. This is not just for people like Kurt and Ruth. This is you and me. And let me tell you, the next step up in our culture has gotten tremendously tall because people are now really disbelieving that Christians have anything kind to offer. We have become entitled and we expect this country to be a Christian country with no conversion. 
certainly no discipleship. As though somehow it's written in to the manifesto of this country. Very strange. Very strange. All of us must surrender, come together, and love others. Now, this is detailed out because what you'll have, and this is where you start digging through all those materials you got this morning because you got several things that we're going to be going over. But you got this trifold thing. Here they are. The headings are on here. The blue is surrender, and the orange is together, and the green is love. And every church and every uh, catechism and, and faith brand of Christianity will come up with certain things like, well, what's that look like? Well, here you go. Under surrender, the very first one says grace. Full participants, that's what we call membership around here, full participants surrender to Jesus Christ. In other words, you don't earn your way to heaven. You respond to grace by following, which requires certain things, but those requirements do not save you. Well, right on down, there's the Bible. Full participants submit to the authority of the Bible. On and on and on, five or six things under each thing, like what would it look like to surrender? What would it look like to come together and be in the church? What does it look like to love other people? There's a strange one on here that's always raised eyebrows. It's right under the, the surrender one, and it's solitude. Solitude? When did that become a Christian discipline? Well, since about the second century. <laughs> Solitude is the furnace of transformation for the soul. I was out, uh, uh, you're going to start hearing here for the next few weeks, you know, Dan talks about a garden, that you should have a garden. There's another should for you. <laughs> that you really need to get out and garden because gardening is holy work. And, uh, and, you know, because when it's August and your garden's full of weeds, then all sorts of spiritual metaphors open up for pastors like me who say like, ah, you should have watched the garden. You know, eh, yeah, sure. You know, and what about how much hard work? Or like the one guy that was here and they started a garden in the lot next to them and somebody came and stole their fruit, all their tomatoes. <laughs> this guy could not even sleep or think for three days. Now, I'm like, yeah, you didn't have that about going down to Hy-Vee or Price Chopper and getting your tomatoes, did you? But when someone stole the stuff that you put your blood, sweat, and tears into, you're ticked off. So I'm out gardening, right? I'm trying to turn over the soil this week. I even dragged my wife out there. She's being kind and polite and saying, what can I do to help? And so I'm out there and I'm digging in the dirt with my hands, okay? And you start thinking Genesis here and toil and man will work for his bread and all this. And I'm out there and I'm in a hurry, okay? So I'm not really being very spiritual about the whole thing. Like I got only a short amount of time. I got to get this garden turned over. And suddenly off my brow, a drop of sweat falls and hits the dust and goes poof and I began to smirk at myself I thought so in a big fat hurry are you <laughs> so from the sweat of your brow man will eat his bread dust to dust ashes to ashes and here you are like every other human being on the planet for centuries and millennia and thousands of years digging in the dirt trying to scratch out some lettuce so I slowed down. I was about done anyway, but I slowed down. I thought, that's why I'm gardening. And then I began to pontificate to my wife, which she, you know, just rolled her eyes and walked away. Because, you know, when you're married to a pastor, that's what you must learn to do to survive. <laughs> Solitude 
it's important for Christian formation. And there are tons of things in this piece of paper that we think are important and sometimes unique that bring up ideas of like gardening is an act of solitude and silence. And even if you hate plants, you know, when you go out and cut the grass, what do you think about? Do you perfect your judgmentalism like I do? And start replaying all sorts of relationships you've had that week? Interesting work cutting that grass. Uh-huh. Anyway, find something that will reveal your soul. But more on that later. That's more about like kind of next week type stuff. Okay. Now, um, these list of habits and qualities inside here, uh, none of them have actually been random. And we've worked at these very hard. But the next thing I want you to work on as we begin to dig into this is I want you to take out this index half sheet of Colossians chapter 2 verses uh, 20 through Colossians chapter 3 verses 17. And I hope you got that little golf pencil that you've been ignoring every week or have a pen. Or better yet, if you read my tweet this week, you should have brought your multicolored set of highlighters. You're going to need it. Okay. Since it, nobody did that, that's fine, but you're going to got work to do because we are going to break down this passage, okay? We're going to tear this thing apart because this is why we want to follow Jesus. This is going to explain why, so keep the big picture. We've got Bible study to do right here, right now. Here's the way this goes. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the universe pretty thick statement. Why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. These have indeed uh, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they're no value in checking self-indulgence. In other words, Colossae, the little city that's now in modern-day Turkey, was really a declining city in the Roman Empire and a Greek-speaking town, by the way. And there was a little church there, and the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Colossae. And, uh, and what he's saying is, and what scholars would say, is that a heresy had entered into that new little church. This is being written about 25 years after Jesus' resurrection, so it's about A.D. 60 if Jesus uh, was raised around 30 or 33 A.D. Okay. Paul is writing to correct some things. He didn't start the church. Another guy did. Epaphras started it. But he's writing because Epaphras said, hey, we need some help. So he's writing this letter and he's saying, you guys got a heresy going on. You know what the heresy was? Legalism. With a big dose of mysticism. Now, mysticism is not ba- isn't bad. Believe me, I'm all over that sort of thing. What's bad is, is when it turns into some sort of mumbo jumbo, which is what was going on. And they began to come up with rules like, don't touch this, don't eat that, you know, and they got all uptight. And Paul's saying, like, that doesn't do anything. That's just a bunch of legalistic, you know, muckety-muck. Going on, verse 3. By the way, there starts to be a structure here. Back up in verse 20, I have it highlighted. If with Christ you died, you could underline that. There's a word died, okay? But in verse 3, it says this. So if you've been raised with Christ, if you died, you've raised. Okay? So that's like 1 and 2 or A and B. And this is going to repeat. Okay? We'll get there. 
If you've been raised with Christ, verse 3, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You've died. You've been raised with Christ. This is why we follow. This is the mechanics of it. You are not the same person. You have been raised. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore. Always pay attention to the therefores in Scripture, especially Paul. Put to death, therefore, whatever in, your earth, whatever in you is earthly. And then he has a list. And you're like, hey, wait a second. This sounds like moralism. Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. But hold on. We're not done. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming to those who are disobedient. Well, now it just sounds like he just flipped over into hellfire brimstone. You know? But he's just simply stating the condition of what's going to happen. It's not going to work well. Verse 7. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must rid yourself of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ in all and in all. What is he saying here? He's saying, this is what has been put to death. This is the part of you and me that was nailed to the cross. It is all of this. And we're going to get into some heady stuff here about false self and true self in just a moment. But let me finish this out with verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves. Or other translations say, put on. And you can write put on there instead of clothe yourself. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Put on uh, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord's forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through him. You'll begin to see this pattern, everyone. Verse 20, you died, you've been raised. Okay? Verse 5, put to death. In other words, put away. And now put on. Now, what you have to understand that in ancient cultures, they were uh, usually not many people could read or write. Now, in the Roman Empire, a lot of people could, but it was still only about 30%. And so people actually memorized things. And when people wrote letters and you're writing it by hand and you're using a, a, a pen or a stylus or whatever, there was a structure to it. And you have this structure here. And this structure goes A, B, A prime, B prime. The prime thing, all the middle school students in the room will now understand what I'm talking about. In other words, it's, an, it's, a, it's a, like a sideways pyramid, and it's A, B, A, B. One, two, one, two. You get it? And that's what Paul has going on here. If you died with Christ, A, verse 3, you've been raised with Christ, B, back to A, put to death, therefore, 
Okay, all of this stuff. And then in verse 12, clothe yourself or put on. And there's a structure to it, okay? And it makes sense of the passage. And by the way, most of scripture is patterned up this sort of way. People wrote very intentionally. And these lists that we think are a bunch of moralistic things that Paul has dreamt up, dreamt up, we're going to break these things down. Okay. The first thing in pattern one there is saying don't cave in to the heresy of moralism, which I think a lot of Christianity these days has caved into. All right. Pattern two. So if you've been raised with Christ, you are hidden with Jesus. The glory of Jesus is revealed not just when Jesus returns, which is certainly true when Christ comes back. It is being revealed all around us. Christ is in all and is all. All of the creation around us is, is revealing Christ. This is the weirdest thing that we have to get over. And it's part and parcel with this idea that you can be converted without following Jesus, that we can have conversion without discipleship. The same thing goes on in our worldview. Hang with me here. See, the dealio here is that we think, we think that God is absent and we are attempting to find God. For the last 500 years, this has been called the Protestant imagination. It's a part of Western thought, and we could do Western Civ here and it'd get really boring. But nonetheless, because of rationalism and so forth, what has happened is, is that the Protestant imagination, how we view the world, believes that God is missing and somehow we are trying to find God. Now the other half of the world, the Eastern world, the Mediterranean world, the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, some Roman Catholic, not all Roman Catholic, uh, the Coptic Christians, the Melkite, the Jordanian, all of those over around the Mediterranean, the guys, you know, as George Costanza said, with the funny hats. Those people have a sacramental imagination. God is not absent. God is not hiding. God is present everywhere. They have no concept of conversion without discipleship. They have no concept of God being hidden. Their overriding metaphor in the Orthodox Church is light. And it is everywhere. You get it? Our problem is, is that we have split off God from the daily life. And we think it's a struggle to find God. But historic Christianity, and part of the reasons why we're pushing various prayers on you from antiquity and so forth, is to try and get some sort of sacramental imagination back inside of us. What we're trying to do is get everyone to realize that we live in the light. And you can't read the Bible and Paul, who has that same imagination as the East, and, and try and force it into our imagination. It won't work. And you'll end up with legalism and moralism. And you'll just read stuff like, yeah, Christ in all and with all, and go, yeah, whatever. Because we can't figure it out. This is heavy stuff. This is how Paul is thinking about the resurrection in you and me and in the city of Colossae. Those early Christians, we are no different. Chapter 3, verse 5, right here. Put to death, therefore, whatever is in you. Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 
Now, at this point, I have to introduce two summary words, two statements about what Paul was talking about from traditional Christianity. This is the way the Desert Fathers talked about this back in the fourth century. The false self and the true self. What Paul is describing here with fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires. Think about those. All of these are an inward fruit of a lie. They're all inward. Now, the other list that's on there, back there or in verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, But now you have to get rid of such things like anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive language from your mouth. These are the things spewing out of you. Based on the lie, these identity things of fornication, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, this idolatry of self, when that has taken its root, what spews out of you is all of this junk that makes us crabby and snappy and mean. We lie. And Paul is saying, strip off this old self, this false self, and embrace the new self, the resurrected you, not the old one. And I have to say, this is interesting at this point, because you have to understand, once again, God is not absent. Where you really belong is in the garden with the creator. That is your true self. There is this weird belief out there in Christianity that somehow what you really are is you are a sinner and you were made a sinner. And you're always going to be a sinner. Now, we sin. Don't get me wrong. And sin's a wonderful thing because that means we receive grace. But the weirdness is, is that we think that, that we're putting on, that we're slathering on, like we're this clothes that Paul's talking about, like we're putting on the true self, like that's who we're really supposed to be, and that's not true. It's a revealing. And what we've put on instead is this falsehood of the false self, the lie. Okay? The lie. That's, the, that's what we're talking about. This is the false self, these things that are about our identity. Sex is always about identity. It's always about that. The false self is this lie that we all develop very early in life. Alan Jones notes that psychoanalysts claim that each of us gets set in a certain period very early in life, like before six years old. You get set with a lie. It is, and then you develop the ego... You guys tell I'm in a doctoral program. Uh, you, you develop the ego in response to the lie that you're telling yourself. Okay? Somewhere between, psychoanalysts say, somewhere between three and a half years old and six years old, we get set. Now, they're using this word set, and the illustration that comes with it is chicks. Little, you know, like gosling chicks and ducklings. Okay? Because... Just get your chickenology down here for a moment, okay? All of us suburbanites, we don't know much about this. Here's the deal. We, I know you've been taught, you know, that like ducklings, goslings, and chicks, um, um, what do you call it, imprint or bond onto the mother chicken or something. They'll actually imprint onto a dog or, God forbid, a cat. But they'll do any of that. They'll imprint on you, Farmer Jones, okay? They don't do it as the very first thing they see. There's some magical moment when chicks set, and if you happen to be walking by, well, then you just got yourself a good friend until chicken dinner time. But it happens at some moment, and psychoanalysts are saying the human spirit is the same way. 
somewhere in there, something gets set that you begin to lie to yourself. And that lie comes uh, in this sort of form. You're stupid. You're unwanted. I wish you'd never been born. Therefore, you should be perfect if you want to be deserved of wanting to be wanted around here. The ego kicks in and says, I can fix that. I can fix that. I know I got this lie inside me that says I'm one. Now, you don't know this stuff, right? You're never telling yourself. I know I'm unwanted. I know I should have never been born, but I can fix that. I'm going to strive. I'm going to make a pile of money. I'm going to do the best I can do, or I'm going to become an alcoholic, and I'm going to hide, you know. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to become all sorts of mess. I know a man in his 40s who's lived most of his adult, well, all of his adult life as a recluse, bitter and sad. But I knew him as a little boy, and he was happy in the life of the party, and the light shone out of him. But somewhere, somewhere there early on, he found out that his parents married because he was born. And they resented it and left the church because they only got married for legalistic reasons. So they weren't living in sin. And that little boy grew up into a man who only heard one thing in the lie. You're a mistake. He's been hiding ever since. That's what the ego told him to do. Hide. You're worthless. In my opinion, the ego's lie runs parallel to that moment when a child stops being an artist. You know every four-year-old's a fantastic artist, right? They totally believe it. They totally think like, dude, this crayon thing I did, this is awesome. Stick it above the mantle. And you do. You know, and if you're a wise parent or grandparent, you know very well. Never say so. That looks like grandpa and, uh, and there's the house. Like, no, 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 that's the dog. That's not grandpa. Like, oh, okay, yeah. So, you know, you want to get this line down. Wow, that's great. Tell me about it. Got that? Okay. Tell me all about it. Don't make me sit here and make a fool of myself trying to guess because you're going to look like an idiot. Okay. But something, by the time a child is eight, they've all stopped being artists. What happened? The ego kicked in and said, I'm not a great artist. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to be somebody else. You know what the number one tattoo in prison is? Loser. Because of this ego's lie, people grow up to try and be as successful as possible, to be perfectionists, to be alcoholics, pastors, anything that'll cover over that terrible lie that they bought into from the false self. Anything. They'll destroy themselves or they'll put themselves on the highest tower. That is what was put to death on the cross and raised to new life three days later, revealed as your true self. And Paul is saying, embrace the true self. 
put this on. It's your natural clothes. The rest of it is dyed. Stop buying into the inward lies that little list he has there with its spewing of its outward lies and the anger and the malice and the abusive language and become who you're supposed to be. How many lives have been destroyed by buying into this lie? The story goes that in 1980, Hall of Fame George Brett was the American League MVP that year. He batted 390 for the season. Brett's batting average was or above 400 all the way up until September 19th. 400, batting 400 up to September 19th. The entire country was watching this new guy, Brett, strive to break 400 as a batting average for the season. Hadn't been broke since Ted Williams in 1941. Batted 414. Hasn't been broke since, I don't think. When the season ended and Brett only batted 390, his dad came up to him and asked, and just said one thing. So, couldn't bat 400, huh? Close yourself, clothe yourselves with compassion. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are not put-ons, everyone. This is what wells up inside of you if you're resurrected from within. This is the natural fruit of a resurrected life. These are not moralistic to-dos or shoulds. This is who you really are. Soak up the word of Jesus. Live into his life and be thankful and be in gratitude. You know how... Um, how to know your, your true resurrected self. It says right there, it says, there's no judgment. You don't make distinctions amongst people. You don't split people and say like, hey, there's Jews, there's non-Jew, there's this barbarian, the Scythian, free slave. I believe the very first sin that was attacked in the early church was racism. And yet, as Dr. Martin Luther King says, the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning. Hmm. You know how you can tell is if you're great, grateful, if you don't have entitlement, if you're just glad that each day you wake up and say, huh, I'm alive again. Well, you know about that. I'm going to go stare out the window for a while, drink some coffee. It's a happy day. I get to live another day, maybe. If I don't make it the rest of the day, like, okay. You know how you can tell this? When you get up in the morning, you take a shower, or you come home from work, and you take a shower, and you're in the shower, and just unbeknownst to you and unbidden, out comes you some song. Not just any old song. I'm not saying Back in Black by ACDC, you know, or, you know, TikTok or something like that. I'm saying a song comes out of you that's some old hymn. You're like, God, where'd that come from? I'm a grandma or something? Or some song that was here. All my fountains comes drifting into your head tomorrow morning. It's light shining out of you. It says, that's just, what, that's just what comes out of me. That's just what comes out of me. You know, if it were somehow magically possible for me to force you 
to be this new creation in Christ, I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't magically make you into some sort of devout Christian. Why? Because it has to come out of you. It has to be your desire. You have to respond to God and embrace it. Say, I'm resurrected with Jesus. I'm not going to live eternally after I die. I'm living eternally right now. I'm already in the kingdom. Kingdom come, sure, but I'm in it right now. I'm already living this. Why am I being crabby and angry and all uptight? Where's that going to get me? Let go. Will this add another single, you know, cubit to your life? No. You belong to Christ. You have been resurrected with him. Therefore, put it off. Take it off. Set it down. It's been nailed to the cross. That is why we follow Jesus. You are a new creation.